Hello, Kim. Great to have you here. Welcome to the Hafta podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tell me about um, your company. Yeah, so I'm the CEO and founder of Vested Impact. Um, so Vested is a company um, that actually began with a goal, and it's a rather lofty one, but it began with a goal to redefine millionaire, to be a person who impacts millions of lives. I saw that on your website. Yeah, and and I think the idea was we we see it in the world at the moment. You know, we we probably care more than we ever have as a society, particularly about the companies we support or where our money goes. Um, so it was really about how can we define or redefine value um, instead of you know just things about risk and return in terms of investment. How do we put impact up there? So so that was kind of the goal vested started with. Um, and, you know, by nature then was just a matter of how do we solve that problem then by giving people the data that tells them the impact that their money makes um, and that the the companies that they invest in or give their money to, the, the positive or negative impacts they have on the issues that matter to us and the world. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And what really got my attention was... The, the, your objective, trying to redefine the word millionaire. I think that it is definitely changing. I think that each day, I think more and more people are valuing the impact that uh, successful entrepreneurs, just like yourself, are doing in this world. So I would love to hear more about uh, Kim Abbott in the early days. So tell me, Kim, where are you from? I'm an Australian by background, if the accent doesn't give it away. Um, So born and bred in Australia, um, but have lived in the United Kingdom here um, for the past nearly seven years. Um, But I'm an engineer by background, Um, a mechanical engineer, actually. Um, So started my kind of my career and my life out still with the intent that I wanted to solve problems and I wanted to solve problems that mattered. Um, so I, I kind of majored in biomedical engineering with an intent to kind of, you know, w- work on that side of the world. Um, and I think, you know, chance and life's a, a, an interesting thing because I, I ended up running a social enterprise in India for a few years um, and then ended up working actually in, in aerospace um, engineering, which was what brought me to the UK. But as, as different as those experiences seem, they actually have all kind of fed, um, you know, and, and contributed to, to what I now know today, um, which then, of course, led me to working for the UN and, and then on to Vested. Um, but yeah, it all started in, in a very small town called Jeringong in Australia um, with a population of a few thousand and uh, is currently now here in London. I'm wondering if at an early age in life you might have been um, exposed to a certain experience that might have really influenced you might have might have been might have said oh you know the world needs a little bit more of help and I'm not seeing it so I'm gonna 
thrive to help in you know aerospace engineering or uh, building a social enterprise of sorts so do you think that you were influenced by anything in particular were or have your parents maybe yeah. taught you to I've I've thought about this a few times this question because I often can't pin the kind of you know when did you start caring mm. kind of thing but but what I have realized and I can absolutely attribute to my parents and my upbringing um, was the willingness to you know and the desire to solve problems mm. um, but also the kind of willingness to fail because I both my parents came from kind of farming backgrounds um, my father in particular was you know the kind of man that everything was fixable you know if the TV broke or, or something you know he would he would fix it even if he didn't know how it was you solve the problem and you try and so I think growing up watching that and also having that environment where it was like why don't you have a go and it instilled in me I've never really been that afraid of of trying because it was always something I was allowed to do and encouraged to do so I think that innate approach to thinking I can solve any problem um, definitely came from there and then yeah I think there are life experiences I, as I do I do often attribute to my my trip to India was a bit of that eye-opening moment to exposure to the world and other issues and I think that helped me to understand that those skills and that problem solving could be applied to problems that I believed mattered or, or helping people so um, so yeah I think that's there is definitely I, I give a huge amount of credit and they deserve it to my parents um, for that environment I had um, you know, I never knew tinkering in the shed with my dad would, would probably be the key driver that led to me here, but but I think it is. What uh, do you have any recollections of things that you fixed, like maybe you know, a car <laughs> or a piece of machinery or anything like that? Um, I, I actually do have a very favorite one, which is going to sound bizarre, but I had a pet mouse um, <laughs> when I was when I was around eleven or twelve. <laughs> And I really wanted to build, a, you know, a, a mouse house, if you want to call it, but a, but a better pen for my mouse. And we had an old doll's house um, that I was like, I could, I could turn this into it. And that was it. Like my my dad was literally like, okay, have a go. Like here is how you use the power tools. Like he would kind of guide me, but not do it for me. It it was up to me to do it. And you know, and it was poorly made and there was nails sticking out at all angles but I built it. But you it. built it. I yeah. built it and you know of course there's this supervision to make sure I you know, I didn't do anything too drastic or too dangerous mm. but that is something I, I remember that because I remember him almost watching over my shoulder probably cringing going <laughs> oh my goodness um, but again she it was it was not you can't or you should it was we'll try it. Um, it, it might not work and then he'd, he'd help me but um, yeah, building that mouse house um, does definitely stand out. I, I, I mean, I don't know if it's um, it will get into the topic of parenting, you know. But I think that it's so important to let the younger generation try and fail and make mistakes. And I think that the realization of the mistakes is really it. Is that beautiful mm. process of understanding how can you improve and do better and better and better so we have 
him brought up in this fantastic environment of learning, fixing, and then did you do your universities and studies in, in, in Australia as well? I did. Okay. Um, so I did all my schooling. I'm, I'm a proud public schooling child. Um, okay. So I went through the public system and got a scholarship for, for university. And I was one of only five girls in my engineering class of about 180. Um, and and yeah, and I, I studied locally as well. I didn't move away from home. It's, it's not as a common thing necessarily mm. in Australia for you to kind of live on college campus or anything. So I stayed yeah. at home and, and studied at my local university um, in Australia. Um, fantastic. That's really good to hear. Um, I was going to ask you, um, how was uh, did, did you how was the experience of being um, one of very few girls in a mostly maybe male dominated environment in university? Did that affect you somehow? Did that made you gr like grow character to a certain extent? It's interesting because, yes, there was definitely challenges, but I'll be really honest to say my peers, my, my male classmate peers, were largely wonderful. Oh, Honestly, nice. they, they were fantastic. You were one of them. And I, you know, all my best friends were, were obviously um, guys. Obvi I think the challenges just came in, in particularly some of the staff or the older generation who were not as used to, you know, they, they might make a comment because they're not used to having you know, women in a lecture or yep. something like that. But honestly, I think it was a it was quite a welcoming experience. And even when I went into the workplace, um, you know, working as a mechanical engineer, you were still one of, you know, not even often a handful of women. Um, but I was probably, you know, and maybe I'm fortunate, many, many don't have the same experience. But I've had largely a very good experience and I think it has served me well um, because, you know, even working now what I do in tech and finance, it's still incredibly male dominated. Um, so I've kind of gotten used to it. Um, but but no, it, it, I didn't ever see it as a barrier, sometimes just an additional challenge. Um, but I often saw it as that. My dad used to kind of be like, if I did an exam at university, it was, did you beat the boys? You know. Do you think that... Um since university times, did you had any curiosity to be your own boss? Do you had did you, did you maybe said, hmm, I think that I'd love to be a leader one day and lead an idea, lead a company, create a company culture, this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think it was always in there, a bit like the problem solving. I played a lot of sports growing up in Australia, and I think I, I was perhaps, you would say, a, a natural leader inherently. You know, you captain the sports team or, or things like that. So I think I loved leading. I loved solving problems and, and starting things, even if it was, you know, university initiatives or clubs. Um, so I think it was probably inevitable, but I can't say I ever actually thought it would really happen mm. um you know you just kind of think okay you get a degree you get a job and you do imagine leading or climbing the the, the corporate ladder so to speak but um yeah I, I look at it now and i think it was probably something that was going to happen but i don't think i ever planned for it interesting so you finished university and what all happened did you get your first corporate job or did you immediately started your entrepreneurial career yeah no pretty standard like most people graduated university got a graduate job through a graduate program at an engineering firm 
Um, and at the same time, I was still running my social enterprise in India. So I, I was kind of doing both for, for quite a few years um, and then, then handed over the social enterprise. Um, and then also through my, my engineering job was when I also decided I wanted a, a more international and global experience. So I asked to be transferred overseas. So working for a global company, it, it's a lot easier. Um, they can send you to a different office. And that was how I landed in London. Oh, super cool. How, how did that social enterprise started, by the way? And what does it exactly do? Yeah, so it was a social enterprise called Roca. Um, it was all centered around economic empowerment of women. And it was based in, in Bangalore, in, in central South India. Um, and, and it was really about, we started a company um, in women work in the granite quarries on the outskirts of the city. Um, they were earning less than, you know, a dollar fifty US a day, mining granite 12 hours a day. Um, and it was really about how we could create an alternate economy for them. And that business seemed to be the most sustainable way to do it because philanthropy and charity you know, these people don't want a handout, they want a hand up. Mm. Um, and so, and women are the most underutilized resource in the world, but particularly in, in somewhere like India and in those, you know, small village cultures. So yeah, we just started a business where we trained the women how to make jewelry out of waste granite dust, oh, wow. which, yeah, we figured out a way to mix it up, turn it into a clay, train them how to operate and run the business, not just make the products, um, and we'd export it back to Australia and sell it. But um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it did run for quite a few years, um, purely with the with the support and under the umbrella of a, another great Australian organization called the 40K Foundation. Um, but yeah, it, it was a phenomenal experience. And, and my first experience, I think, in how do you create businesses with, with purpose and with true impact. Of course. How old were you when you set up the... It's 21, 22. Oh, yeah. Wow. I was very young. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, if you don't mind me asking, what did the uh, engineering firm that you started working for did? Like what did yeah, so my, my first engineering job was working for Talus. Um, they're okay. a French aerospace company. They do everything from from uh, the ticket in, the signal in here on the London Underground um, and, and, you know, ticket in in Auckland to, yeah, they, they work on defense naval ships and systems and technology and cybersecurity. Um, so it was a fantastic company to get a good experience of all different types. So I was mechanical. I started in production, but, you know, even when I ended up here in the UK, I was working on cyber and smart cities. And oh, wow. um, so I think working for a multinational is phenomenal. The travel, the global experience, the global application of your work. Um, but yeah, and, and also just the opportunity to work on such a varying range um, of technologies and and you know, and you, you mentioned this company was based in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, but yeah. you had to travel all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, it depends what you did for work, but yeah, in Australia we did a lot in in Australia and New Zealand, and then yeah, they they're in the UK, in the US, in France, Fran obviously French company. Um, so yeah, it was really about what you were working on, and 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 also their development opportunities for their graduates, and that was often there was a there was conference in Paris or, or something like that. How long were you working with them? So I ended up working for Talus for, I think, close to seven years, oh, wow. uh, five to seven years. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I did a few years um, in Australia, moved here. I think I did about five years in Australia, moved here to the UK, did a couple of years here and then and then left. Working for corporate is always such a interesting experience, you know, um, of course, 
many of us you know frowned upon how squared corporate can be but then once we're out there uh, trying to venture with our own ideas it serves such a great purpose to understand all the different areas we need to organize you know whether mm. it's supply chain logistics inventory sales all these different things um when you in your last moments working for them did you had uh, an inner call that said I'm, ju i'm just gonna be my own boss i need to do something on my own yeah i did mm. um and i think it was it and it was in no way i think a reflection of of the company or necessarily the work often it's just your own inner inner itch that you want to scratch and i think it was in a big corporate you mentioned it um the grass is often greener you leave and realize actually it's wonderful to have all those departments around you to help <laughs> um i definitely wish i had all, all that now um but i think you know i wanted I, I was young, energetic. I wanted to do things fast. Big corporates never move fast. <laughs> um, you know, you want to be innovative. But most importantly was I wanted to go back to doing and solving problems that I believed mattered. You know, some people believe, you know, what we were doing mattered, but it just wasn't for me. So it really just was a pure, you know, there wasn't a lot they could do to, to keep me because I was like, I want to go and work on solving problems that, that I believe matter. So so I left and, and joined the UN. Oh, interesting. And how long were you in the UN? And what were you doing for them? Four years. Um, wow. So I, I took up what was meant to be a three-month kind of advisory consulting contract with the UN, with the UN Department of Peacekeeping. Um, which then turned into four years um, and probably four of the most interesting work years um, I can imagine. of my life. The but UN, that's, fun. that's really, really, uh, I'm sure you were exposed to all sorts of cultures, opinions, ways of managing and admin, I suppose, or yeah. operations. Bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bureaucracy is probably the word. But no, I think, again, it's one of those experiences that you're right. I have never worked with such diverse cultures in one team. Yeah. I have never worked across such diverse globally because, I mean, when you work in peacekeeping, there are, there are 13 peacekeepings globally, and you are talking about Mali, Congo, Kosovo, Cyprus, you know, it, They range so different. Um, the nature of the conflicts are different. The the people are different. Um, so that was just, it's fascinating, but a challenge in itself. Mm. Um, but then I think for me, so I was brought in as a technical person to an organization that is largely and historically policy, mm. right? So all of a sudden, I, I wasn't an engineer in an engineering firm. I was the, the tech person in a policy firm realizing they For all their good intent, they don't understand a word I'm saying to them. Um, yeah. And it taught me so much about, you know, I think often the way we overcomplicate, you know, the finance sector does it terribly, overcomplicates what they do with jargon and that. Mm, so definitely. it really taught me a hell of a lot about communication, about keeping things simple and about focusing on what's really important. The, mm -hmm. the detail that was less important, it wasn't about how the tech work, it was about is it truly helping yeah. people on the ground yeah. you know, yeah. get things right? And so that taught me a lot about just changing that focus. Do you think that uh, being exposed to all these struggling nations, do you think that influenced or do you, uh, influenced you in creating what vested impact is today? 
Absolutely. So I already had the idea for Vested actually before I joined the UN. So I, I was doing the UN part time and was kind of building Vested concurrently. But Vested could not be where it was today if it wasn't for those learnings. Absolutely Why? from the UN. I think, like I say, it's it's you can go into a thing and think. So what Vested does is Vested measures the impact that companies have outwardly you know, on, on the world's greatest issues, and it pulls on over 100 million data points to do that. Simplistically, that sounds easy. Build a framework, put some indicators, you're done. But what the UN taught me was, was what I mentioned. Every problem is different in every place for different people, for different solutions. And so I could have built Vested, but it would be nowhere near as actually good um, at genuinely measuring impact and making sure we're reflecting, you know, the nature of the problems that exist for people on the ground, for human beings. Yeah. So I think that was absolutely something that, you know, I was constantly, I used to say to my boss, you know, my company is benefiting, the, the knowledge I have from my company is helping benefit what we were building for the UN, but what they were doing was also helping me. It was such a mutually shared um you know, kind of shared value um, thing that, yeah, I'm I'm forever grateful for that experience and just the, the amazing people you meet. So early days of vested impact. Here you are, you're trying to, your idea was always to create um, an enterprise where you could basically receive investments from XYZ people and basically reinvest into causes that had meaningful impact. Um, what were, what did day one look like? Uh, I mean, were you, okay, maybe I should, I, I worked in the UN, I have some leads of people I know where to go to. H how did that like, um, sort of Yeah, unfolded? so I think before it even got to that, my my day one of the idea was I had quit my job at Talos with, with nothing in line, thinking I'll, I'll figure out something. And I wrote on my wall one day on the whiteboard, I wrote, how do you solve the world's biggest problems? Wow. And then I wrote down under that, if anyone's ever done kind of ideation or brainstorming thinking, I, I simply wrote down under that, well, what do I mean by world's biggest problems? You know, what do I mean? What are the challenges in solving those problems? And I, I settled on three things. One was money, because we're about $5 trillion a year short of enough money to even come close, and that's a year, um, to even come close to solving climate change, poverty, any of that. So I was like, money's a problem, awareness and education is a problem, and, and collaboration is a problem, because no one will do it alone. And I kind of looked at those three and went, okay, let's dive into one of those. And I just happened to dive into the money thing. Why, if there is so much wealth in the world, why is that money not going there? And then again, I kind of fell down to, well, the problem with data. And that's when I went, well, if I can provide the data that helps people make the decisions about where that money should go, we will drive it there. So that was conceptually where it started. And then I think it just, mm -hmm. it snowballs from that. Day one was like, well, you know, what do we actually mean by measuring impact? <laughs> What's a good methodology? Yes, let's let's ask some people, let's pull it together. How do we do it in a way that, you know, I think the biggest thing I learned is listening to the needs of the people you're serving, whether they are your customers or the people whose lives you're trying to change, they both matter in this case. So it was understanding what the issues are and, and how they're truly you know, reflected and captured, but also, yeah, what are the, why aren't they doing this already? And it was things like it's too manual. And so that would just constantly drive going, okay, we need to automate that. Have no idea how, but we'll figure it out and just snowballs from there. 
to many of our listeners, they are, um, I'm sure that many of them are starting their businesses as we speak. And uh, they'll have a million questions for you. I think people underestimate the power of the whiteboard. <laughs> the whiteboard <laughs> is so powerful. Um, and I would encourage anyone to buy a whiteboard, uh, you know, a set of markers, some post-its, and just start doing what you did. Okay, where do I start? What am I trying to achieve here? And how do I dive into all the different layers just break it down break i think down. we try to the saying used to be we try to boil the ocean but <laughs> the problems oh we care about are huge right you know yeah. a lot of people care a lot about the climate at the moment and it's daunting to say how do i solve climate change but if you break it down like i did and go well what's driving it you know it's it's emissions it's this it's this okay mm. well what's driving emissions and if you start to dig into it you will hit a point on something that your skills can contribute to and that was what i did it was just how do i keep drilling down to a point that i go oh if data is a problem i know data maybe i can solve that so that's the that's what i tell everyone i tell kids these days too it's like exactly the same as get a whiteboard um and just keep asking why and what until you hit something that you can yeah. do something about root cause analysis yeah. as i would say yeah. um so when in in which layer did you hit the I would say the spot you said aha we've got something here that we can start working on yeah I think as I just talked through it before I think it was a fair way down like I said you know financing is the problem it's okay, okay you know they don't every decision in finance is made on data and if they don't have the data the decision doesn't get made and it was like okay but then like you say that the digging into then and understanding the needs of why doesn't their data already exist and, and that, then it gets really granular. But um, I say to people at the time, you know, it it might have sounded arrogant to write, how am I going to solve the world's problems on the wall? But I wasn't naive enough to think I could solve them all. It was truly about finding the part I could. Yeah. And then yeah. I think even for a business, to build a company around that means you have such a clear vision then of this is where we're heading. You know, yeah. when we say redefine yeah. millionaire, it seems rather lofty, but actually there's quite a clear path to it because yeah. you've broken it down from, from the top down and you can say my small part is going to link to this, which is going to link to that. It makes so total sense. It, I mean, yeah, I mean, should, shouldn't we admire more the people who are doing good to our planet than rather than a currency amount or something like that? It makes total sense. Um, what are some of the... Um, I guess, m problems you're trying to solve and w which ones do you think uh, your clients are more interested in or best at impact is mostly interested in? So I think the first real challenge is in the market today, um, most people don't know what impact is. So if you see ESG or you see sustainability, people Yeah, what think, is impact? Yeah, well, so, that's the thing. So people see ESG and sustainability and they think, great, this is a company that's good. But currently largely what that actually means is it's really assessing how a company behaves it's their internal governance it's do they have the right you know kind of labor policies in place um, and it's often what is the risk of the climate on a company's performance that is how the financial markets work through no fault of their own but that's how they work it is what are the factors that are going to affect the material value of a company which means if something scores well on esg it means it's actually just low risk to the environment affecting it, mm. 
not the other way around. And that's what impact is, to say, well, hang on, what is the material impact the company has outwardly? What are the impacts that, that you know, you might say a... American tobacco is a good one. Um, controversially, on, on one main ESG market, it scores quite well because they have good employee regulations, they have good healthcare, they have all those things for their employees. But they are fundamentally a tobacco company, mm. right? And that's what impacts about. It's going, well, actually, how much value, what positively or negatively does tobacco impact? Now, they're not always inherently straightforward. Tobacco is bad, obviously, causes a lot of lung cancer and health issues and health effects, you know, economy, jobs, everything. But they do also employ farmers. Tobacco farming is a, is a huge revenue stream for the developing world. And that's the nuance that Vested has to capture. And oil and gas is the same. Um, is it a huge emitter and a terrible thing for our environment? Absolutely. But right now, if we cut it off, What's going to happen? Exactly. We have to understand about access to electricity, access to affordable and reliable electricity. So it does have positives. And I think nearly every company has some form of positive impact, be it just economic jobs. Um, and nearly every has negatives. You and I sit in here right now. There's, you know, the computer is going to be emitting <laughs> emissions, right? Exactly. So it's just being honest about that and mm. having that data. So we know, you know, how much does a mobile phone you know, help a person, it'll be different if they're in Uganda versus the United Kingdom. Um, and what yeah. does it help and how? So uh, how do you currently measure impact? Do you have maybe a team of engineers? Uh, do you have maybe some sort of algorithm per issue that measures the different impact that um, an issue causes yeah. in the world? So the second thing, you've hit on the good thing about what matters to our customers. Um, the second thing was that it needs to be able to be done at scale because oh. the capital markets, right? You're talking tens of thousands of companies, millions of companies, right? And if someone's having to manually assess each of these companies, you, you, you're missing some, right? Mm. People will only look at Apple, Amazon, the ones that people care about. So yes, so we decided to build an algorithm to automate it. So we first knew we, we needed to get people to actually start thinking about measuring impact, not ESG. Mm. Then we need to figure out how to automate it and to do it in a way that is, in a social science sense, the correct way to measure impact, and using data that is trusted and reputable. So we built an algorithm based on you know a bunch of methodologies on, on how to best measure and, and assess an attribute impact. And then we pull on over 100 million impact data points. And so this is data that exists. Million. It's data from the World Bank, the OECD, you know, all those organizations, because the best example I can give is a company like Vodacom um, in South Africa. They they can tell you, they know what they do, they even know maybe their production rates, and they will say, we delivered 2 million mobile subscriptions to people in South Africa. Oh and they go, that's our impact. But it's not. <laughs> that's not. That's your output. Your impact is, what is the change how is it making people's lives better, those 2 million subscriptions? Which is, mm. how has access to affordable mobile internet changed? How has access to mobile banking, education, all these things that link to the internet, right? And that's where vested impact and that comes data, in. Exactly. And that data wow. is captured by these institutions who are the ones who should be capturing it, who know it best, which is the World Bank, the UN, all these ones. So we're really just connecting the dots in here. Yeah. Um, and, and alongside, like you say, a methodology that really has to be so rigorous in mm. terms of is it truly measuring impact? Because mm -hmm. if we get it wrong, 
you know, you can be doing more harm than good sometimes. And, and that's a moral thing. We have to test ourselves on all the time. Kim, um, you're an engineer. Uh, there's all these different topics uh, like sales, like recruitment, like procurement, managing people, finance. Um, how do you learn all this? Find some really good mentors. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but honestly, you, you do have to learn. I think I, initially I thought I do have to learn all this. Mm. And then you realize it's not possible. Mm. Um, and so you also learn, have to learn where you just need to hire help. Um, legal yeah. is always one. Just hire it. Don't try and do it yourself. You'll, you'll get yourself in trouble. Um, but honestly, it was, you know, I ran my company nearly as a one woman show for, you know, a couple of years, because if you build a good network of mentors, advisors, um, you know, and be willing and humble enough to ask them for help, um, it will just ease so many of your problems because you can try and learn it all. And there's a lot that I do um, and did do, but there's also a lot that made my life easier by simply asking for help. How did you, so here you are, you quit your job, start Best at the Impact. Um, how were you sustaining yourself? Um, how did you fund this company? How, how did things happen for you? Yeah, so I, people always think it's risky and it obviously is to take a startup. Um, I took a slightly lower risk approach because uh, as I might've mentioned earlier, I took um, part-time consulting with the UN. So I had some bills coming in, basically. I had mm. something to cover my bills and then also just a couple of days left in the week to focus on my company. Now, ideally, and I would say this to any entrepreneur, since I went 100% focusing on my company, its success has soared rapidly. So mm. focus is important, but that's not always possible financially. Okay. So I had to make that call to go financially, I, I, you know, I don't have a huge amount of wealth behind me or family wealth that I needed to work part time to bootstrap myself personally. Yeah. Um, and then I did for the business, obviously, I took a small amount of funding to, to bootstrap it for a bit. Um, but yeah, for, for many years, it was honestly just doing the part time side gig until I got vested to a point that I could more reasonably take a risk to, to leave completely. Interesting. So here you are, um, you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to take a part-time job because I really want to do something for myself and I really want that spare time. Um, maybe that income won't um, do a whole lot, but it will get me by for me mm -hmm. to explore and study the possibility of opening my own business. You mentioned you were running this show by yourself. Um, when did you start it? seeing that things were working out when did you maybe start turning a profit or you were like okay maybe it's time for me to start hiring some people yeah i think what is interesting is you do often need to hire people before you make money which is the hard thing that i found because in a sense you know i'm an engineer i could build a product and build an mvp um, but again this is only so much you can do right the solving that and and also i did get to a point where so we had a product, we started getting some pilots and some initial revenue, which is still not enough to fund yourself, but enough to kind of prove that validation that it's all about de-risking. If I've, I've been hanging around the finance sector too long now, but it's all <laughs> about de-risking of going, if you can prove people are willing to buy it, then if you need to hire someone, you may not have the money yet, but you know it's going to come. So, so how I, do you build this prototype? Well, I mean, I'm I, I I'm an engineer. I had been fortunately teaching myself to code um, oh, wow. for the years before it. So, 
Yeah, and, and a lot of it, it was just, I... Did um, you took any courses or did, were you just... YouTube is it? a wonderful resource. <laughs> um, but honestly, yeah. It is, and and it, it was a case of, like I said, I, I knew some basic tools mm. that I had used and had been using at the UN. And so that's when I say it did really help me um, because I could build things more rapidly. Um, and I think there are so many tools these days that are low code, easy to use, um, so That's yeah, I, I spent probably as an engineer, to be honest, I probably spent too long perfecting the product. Um, biggest lesson as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, mm. particularly if you're a technical one, um, is, is not to spend so long on, on perfecting the product. You really need to, to get it out there and, and test yeah. the market. But um, A perfect yeah. MVP, as they say. <laughs> yeah, that's what we I was all, trying. We all want that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you, would, you, would, would you have changed anything in your early days? Simply that, that I just said. Um, I I mean, it's necessary, given what we do, that the algorithm had to be rigorous and right and correct. Mm. But I definitely spent, personally, um, too long in my comfort zone, which is technical coding, playing with data, perfecting it, and not enough time selling. Mm. Um, and selling mm. doesn't necessarily mean the making money, right? It's It's the validation. It's the product market fit. So yeah, that would be my biggest lesson. Um, that end, what I mentioned about, you know, since focusing full time on the company, the speed at which it's grown makes me often think, oh, if I'd done that sooner. Yeah. But but you know, sometimes factors in life, like the financial ones, just just don't allow that. But um, I wish I could have done that sooner. Definitely. Uh, you know, I was um, reading a book the other day um, that you might probably have heard of. Attraction. It it speaks about how you know, founders focus so much on the product and so little on selling, you know, and the book just basically tells you like, well, it's not like that people don't want to buy your product. It's that they just don't know who you are. Um, so when 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 did that happen for you? When did you said, okay, I got to get myself out there and start mm. knocking on some doors and getting this thing really out there? I actually think I, I just basically started getting frustrated with myself. <laughs> in, but in a way, I knew I had built something that was good. And I could even see, you know, you see competitors or people in the market move into similar things. And I think, but 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 mine is better, mm. you know. And, mm. and it was like, well, people, exactly to your point, it was like, and thankfully again to mentors and advisors, it was like, maybe it is better, but you're not the one out there. And and it was a big comfort zone for me. I'm not a natural salesperson, you know, particularly um, being an engineer. So it was almost like, a, well, I'm going to have to suck it up and do it. Um, did you and, learn yeah. somehow? Did you read any books or did your mentor say anything in particular? It's a bit of both. I think it takes a lot of mentoring um, and encouragement, particularly if it's not something in your comfort zone. But it honestly is also just try and error doing it right mm. i mean I how think did you find his mentors by the way i have been so incredibly fortunate in my life um with mentors most of them have come from either literally working life so from the corporate sector some of them i've, I've thankfully managed to keep with me from my early days at talus um but also just at conferences and events right like you yeah. meet people often and you think there is just something about them that either inspires me, that that I can connect with. Um, Did and you yeah. vocalize that to them when you met them? Like, 
Look, some I have, some I haven't. Okay. Yeah, I remember I had one mentor who I quite literally, it's a bit like dating when you do the formal, will you be my mentor? Yeah. Um, And that was like, yeah, fine. But also I just have ones where it's just naturally happened. Like Mm. you say, they're a person who have said, you've met them, they thought they're great. And, you know, you've messaged them and said, hey, can I ask you some questions? And then they're like, let me know if you ever need anything else. And it kind of just naturally snowballs. So you had like two types of mentorship. You had the really organic one, sort of ad hoc. Hey, how's it going? I'm trying to figure this out. Could you take a call this week, perhaps? And then did you also have sort of a more structured mentorship where you would say to this mentor, look, I would love to sit down with you for an hour every week or once a month to get your perspective on X, Y, Z topics? Yeah, yeah, a little of both. And I think some of them, one of them I've had has literally, it it is exactly that. We, it's, it's a weekly call. It's a, you know, it's not necessarily structured about what we're going to talk about, but it is, we check in weekly and it's about these things. Um, And I think that does help. Um, And I think it also helps just to put their hat on, you know, they're a very senior executive and busy person. Mm. So the structure can help them whilst they're also the person that I will, I will message in the midst of a crisis and, you know, have a quick question, no problem. Um, But I think sometimes you, you know, your your mentor um, needs the structure as well because they are often equally as busy as you and it just does help to make it happen. Otherwise it's forever firefighting. You're, you're pinging them a message and they think, I mean, you know, they have to kind of, react and help but if we could have more standard things they could catch things before they happen or you know things like that absolutely um and and this mentors by the way were were they in sort of all these different topics that we mentioned like sales and finance and hiring people Mm. and all these kind of things absolutely i think my weird thing when i look at my mentors is that they are all almost completely opposite to me in terms of what they do. You know, what my closest mentor, Kathy, she is HR. She, mm. She's an ex-HR global head, you know, now a CEO, but HR background. Um, you know, and I think that's actually almost what draws me to them because I know and I admire what they can do that I can't, but what I'm trying to do. So it's weird because I don't have actually really any technical or engineering mentors. I'm often like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need someone to tell me how to to code, but I do need someone to help me with sales or someone to help me with, you know, these these big meetings and things. So definitely my mentors have pretty much a type and it's all the type I'm not. (laughs) Who was the first person you hired? Um, actually was it was a technical person interestingly <laughs> because I built an MVP which was fine and we yep. started getting some traction and it, we I just fast realized that the difference between an MVP and a scalable product would require skills beyond what I had um, so I, I was fortunate to have um, some old Talus colleagues actually who were who were out doing some contracting and consulting and so um, managed to get them so it's it, again, in hindsight, sales, I think I would encourage to always be a very quick sale, um, you know, hire for an entrepreneur if that is not their forte. Um, but yeah, it was important to me that we had a very strong product to sell before we start to sell. Yeah. Since you began Vested Impact, what was the hardest moment you faced and how did you face it? Ooh. Um, yeah. It's probably two moments. One of them was not that long ago. Mm. I think given the market and the world at the moment, there is that very real thing when, you know, as a founder, you often are not earning a salary. Um, You know, your payment is when it succeeds in a few years and, and whatnot. So it was a very real question to myself to go, 
I either need to figure out a way to to really get this growing or it's a serious conversation that you have to have with yourself personally yeah. often or is it you raise more money, which we, which we did the latter. Mm. Um, but that was a really hard moment because it does cause you to just step back a minute and think, how much do I really want this? Do I really believe in this? Um, and, and, that, and I think the other hard moment simply comes with when you lead a company, comes with a huge amount of responsibility to the people in your company, in your mm. team. Mm. And again, it was hitting times where you're like, if su- because of the market, suppliers or customers are late on their invoices, which then causes you to go, gosh, how am I going to pay my team? Um, yep. And that's that was that was definitely one of the most stressful experiences I've had because it's human lives. Yeah. In the end, businesses yeah. are four walls, but it's all about people, and you don't want to let down the people that work so hard for you. Um, so yeah, it's actually been quite recent. We've, we've gotten through it, which is good, but um, that was probably one yeah. of the hardest moments earlier this year. When you started the business and you had a market-ready product, um, how how did your business development look like? Were you just like doing cold? I mean, who who how did, how did you pin down the ideal customer? And then did you have an Excel spreadsheet mm. where you said, okay, this is the list of all these companies that we think would be interested in vested impact. And then you called them, hello, we're vested impact, but we're here to do this and that. Would you be interested in meeting with us? And mm. how many tries did it get you until you, somebody said, hold on, I'm quite interested yeah. in this. Um, so firstly, finding that right persona and person viewpoint mm. actually took a whole heap of small pivots. Okay. Because you kind of go, right, our customer is, you know, the finance sector, anyone investing money, but actually it's who? Is it the, the asset manager? Is yeah. it the client advisor? And that took a lot of small pivots. Um, but once we got that, which our you know general target at the moment is is an asset manager, um, actually, we I didn't take the approach of the kind of cold call. It was actually more so network effect. Okay. Who do I know either in the space or who could get me into the space? Mm. Um, and then the second thing, which was hugely valuable for this alone, was I did participate in a couple of accelerators. Okay. And I think the accelerator programs, you know, they... They vary for for quality of content or learning, but very few of them fail in terms of just meeting good networks and connections. Um, And in particular, I'll I'll mention two I did. One was the Village Capital Mm -hmm. um, Accelerator, which was was with PayPal, so finance sector, very helpful, um, and the Accenture FinTech Innovation Lab which they almost pride themselves on. This is an accelerator where we open our Rolodex and meet who you want. And at the stage we were at, that is incredibly valuable. Because mm, even mm, if mm, you're mm. not talking to the person who writes the check, you're talking to the person who can get you to those to people. That per- to the within these maker. banks, within these financial okay. institutions. Do um, you think, so, yeah. do you th- so were you referenced to your first uh, customer, by the way? Yeah. Okay. Our first customer, to be honest, was actually one of our first... We- <laughs> In the Village Capital Accelerator that I did, we won some grant funding. They then became our first customer. Because wow. and I think it's the lovely story of they obviously saw potential when Vested was barely even an MVP. We got grant funding. And then almost a year and a half later, it was like, well, we'd actually like to use the product. And it's a lovely story. And now, actually, we're about to kind of scale up with them even some more. And I think it's a lovely story of... You know, they saw the potential from the start. They just needed the business to get further along. 
Um, and then, yeah, but our, our first kind of, you know, other, you know, I guess non-invested um, or, or non-committed um, customer was, was came from one of the accelerators. Yeah, it was an introduction and they went, let's go, let's, let's try this. So market ready, you have your website, you have your USB, you are iterating and pivoting to find the ideal candidate or customer. And finally, you raise some money. How much money did you raise, by the way? So initially, when Vesta was a piece idea on a piece of paper about you know nearly three three years ago now, I raised initially just twenty five thousand pound venture via okay. angel angel funding. Okay, and that was just that was actually the the bootstrap money, which really because I did all the development myself, that money just sat in the bank actually for quite a while, and then I actually used that to kind of help my first hire, right, to to mm. bring that on to to get us to MVP, and that was all I needed. How did you find this person? This angel, yeah. again, through a mentor. A um, mentor okay. that said, I know someone who invests in tech, angel. Um, and I think it does help. I have learned a lot about fundraising. It's Unfortunately, it still is a sector where it does matter who you know. And a mm, warm introduction definitely. is always worth more. And, and it is hard because it's a very exclusionary sector then. There's a reason mm. women only get 2% of venture funding. Right. Um, but it was true. That was exactly how it happened. You know that who you know, it's also um, on our last episode, we were speaking about luck, you know, and about making your own luck. And I think that, yeah, there's some mm, that, that, that there's certain circles that are very um, difficult to tap in. But it's also about putting yourself out there so you get to know these people and you start becoming a familiar face to them. Um, what advice would you give to anyone to that is raising money? Would you do you say that it's in the pitch deck? Do you th do you, do you think that it's definitely in that who you know um, premise? What do you um, think really opened that door for you? I would honestly say. Be yourself, because particularly if you're early stage, they're investing in you as a founder, mm. as a person. And I have found, weirdly, one of the best kind of investor relations I have or had had was one that actually was, I almost sat there and went, you know, it, it was just being so brutally honest, where they're used to people kind of upselling or, you know, kind of accentuating success. And it was like, look, I'll be really honest, like, they, they kind of ask me, you know, what do you think of your competitors or where do you think your challenges are? And you're mm. just like, look, actually, this is this is a big problem for us, this this bit here. And I'm trying to get through it. But actually, do you have any advice? And yeah. they said to me, it was interesting because I kind of hung up and went, well, that didn't, uh, didn't go very well. I was probably too honest. And then they almost were chasing, you know, me to be like, well, actually, we'd we want to give you money because, you know, they actually, for them, again, de-risking, they need to know who you are and how you of operate course. and what you stand for. And so my honest thing would be simply be yourself mm -hmm. first and foremost. And yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help and ask for introductions and even ask that of other VCs. Yeah. Um, the amount of VCs that say to me, look, we're not right for you. And you say, well, do you know someone who is? And they'll say, yeah, actually, I have three friends that work in these funds and, and they introduce you on. Interesting. What's a, what's a typical day in your life? Like, do you wake up, have your coffee, your tea? Do you have breakfast? Do you fast? Um, you know, many of our listeners have been asking about, you know, the habits of an entrepreneur. I'd love to know what is 
what is a, a day in the life of Kim Abbott? Yeah, I, I read all those articles about entrepreneurs that get up at 5 a.m. and, and I just think it's utterly ridiculous, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, look, I, I mean, I'm a coffee person of the morning. I must eat breakfast. It's my non-negotiable meal of the day. Mm. Um, I work from home most of the time. We're, we're, we're a tech company, right? We're, we're very dispersed. Um, I always try and get in. I like to run um, as my kind of exercise and, and clear my mind. So I try to get in a run, not every day, um, but when I can. And yeah, my day will be anything from hopefully in the mornings. It's, you know, getting through, getting through the inbox, getting things done. And like you say, it can vary from digging through data or this morning, you know, mm. looking at the, some stuff in in kind of QA before we push it to production. So everything from kind of code review through to this morning was also a, a kind of sales meeting and, and things. So yeah, it can really vary, which I like the variation at the moment. It keeps things exciting, but it does start to become um, your mind is yeah. just bouncing everywhere. You mentioned um, that you were a basically a solopreneur for some time. Uh, did that affect your mental health to a certain extent? And yeah. How, you know, that, how did you manage to you know, mm. have social interactions friends um i'm sure that, that you know you being such a competitive person yeah. you'd wake up and you're like i just want to get this thing right i'm actually glad you raised that because i think not enough attention is paid to mental health mm. of founders and mental being and it's something actually I'm, I'm quite passionate about now because you've hit the nail on the head whether you are a solopreneur or not being an entrepreneur is still an incredibly lonely journey. It is. Um, you know, it's stressful. You don't have, as we talked about, for all those supportive departments. And yeah, if you are a sole founder, you also don't have that extra support. It's a lot of burden on yourself. Um, I did absolutely actually. COVID was was a was an even worsening scenario for that, for for isolation and loneliness. And again, I cannot be more thankful to my mentors and my advisory board who quite literally almost stepped in at one point and was like, you, you know, you need to look after yourself because the business doesn't work if you don't. Yeah. And that was the kind of message. And one of them even said to me, one of my board members said, Kim, it's a, you know, we're, we're human beings, not human doings. Yeah. And because they were trying to tell me like, you know, you need to take a break. Because oh, my answer was to your point was to kind of like, well, I need to get this done. And if I get it done, it will solve my problems. Yeah. If I make this succeed, I won't be on my own. Um, and yeah, and Liz just said to me, she said, you know, Kim, we're, we're human beings, not human doings. And thankfully for the support of those people, Honestly, for the support of a, of a good therapist, I think it's a, a worthwhile discussion we need to be more open about too, is the value of experts when you need them. Um, Absolutely. But we yeah. often rely on our parents, and I think that professional help sometimes uh, provides a more clear path, more, mm. um, you know, th th they, they study. Th this is a whole career of itself for a reason, I yeah. think. Yeah, and um, I think having the final thing I would say is too, a lot of the stress of an entrepreneur can come from the investors and the expectations. And I have just had, and it is worth mentioning, I've had an incredible experience with a, with a new fund called Impact Shakers who gave me a term sheet where there is quite literally a clause on founder wellbeing. And I've never seen it before. You see things on diversity, but I had never seen a clause that quite literally said, you know, I am, I'm responsible for looking after my wellbeing, but I have a duty to them to tell them when it need when you need help or when yeah. things enough and i remember looking at that just simply going 
this feels like a safe environment. It seems like an environment where as a founder, you can say to your investor, even when they're saying, push, 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 run, run, run. No, I can't. And you've already agreed there on paper that that's allowed to happen. Of course. And we need to see more of it to support yeah. the entrepreneurs in their, their mental health and well-being because it's tough. Yeah. Stress and, lonely and loneliness is definitely two massive subjects in being an entrepreneur. How did you cope with that? I can't, I can't say I always coped with it well, to be oh. honest. I mean, yeah, I, I am, I'm quite an introverted person naturally, in, you know, in terms of like in my own space. Same here. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I think for me, it was, you know, go running and that. But um, again, friends and mentors, because I think friends, like you say, they're, they're great for personal life. I often didn't want to burden them with work. So having the mentors who kind of think professionally, you signed up for this um, to kind of go to talk through the business challenges um, yeah, I, I can't advocate enough for having, I say, kind of build your tribe, um, be it a tribe of friends and mentors and board and, and all those things. But those people, to your point, that when times are tough, even sometimes you can't figure out why it's tough. It just is. Um, or you're just tired. And the people who you can not only go to and will you know, give you a warm hug and a reassuring pat on the back, but the person that might also kind of kick you in the butt and and I've had that a few times where it was a bit like you're not going to get pity from me Kim because you were doing this to yourself or you aren't getting out there and and this and that I can't stress enough is is equally as valuable um, absolutely sometimes. absolutely Kim I can't thank you enough for your time this has been so helpful and your experience your upbringing the your I mean everything has been incredibly uh, nourishing for our listeners um any advice you can give to anyone who's starting a business? Um, I would say love it. Um, love you know, it. choose a problem to solve that you care about. And I, and I said to someone, it was also for me about choosing a problem so important that even if I failed, it was still worth trying. And I think that's what gets you out of bed every day. That's what keeps you going when it's tough, when it's lonely, you think, but I'm picking a problem that matters so much that I at least try. Um, so I would say do that, but I would secondary say, I would first say just do it and do. Don't don't think, don't plan, just start doing, but always put yourself and your health and well-being first because the company won't work if you don't. Mm. Thank you, Kim, uh, and hope to see you soon. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> It's weird to hear your own voice. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that um, my... I think...